Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the sultry-as-hell Ryan Siebold, and with me today is a man who got personally chosen by Jeff Bezos to join him on a trip to space, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? And what's up, listeners? How goes it? Man, Jason, I appreciate you bringing the energy, but just remember, in space, no one can hear you scream. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. And you know what the funny thing is, is actually, that's no longer the case. Uh, that may have been the case back in the uh, 70s when Alien came out, but that's actually how I got aboard Jeff Bezos' spaceship, is I invented a machine that allows you to hear people scream in space. Oh, shit. Look at you. Good for you, man. Yeah. yeah that's got to I mean, be useful. Yeah, now, I mean, I was going to say, here's the thing, is it's not technically designed to hear Scream specifically. It's really just designed for, like, uh, interspace communication, if you will, you know? Okay. Uh, interstellar, for those who aren't, you know, lay people. Interstellar um, communication. For the for the yes. podcasters, the galactic uh, <laughs> podcasting community, we could all talk to each <laughs> other. They could hear us out there. Got it. Yeah, yeah, you know, because uh, technology's come so far, and... Uh, it's, it's funny because Jeff Bezos was, was the one to do it, but actually I was first approached by Elon Musk and it was when he was doing that. You remember the whole weird thing he did where he put the camera on the Tesla and like put it in a box and then they like released it into space. Man, I lose track of the weird things that guy does. So when you say, <laughs> <laughs> when you say something like, do you remember that weird thing Elon Musk did? It's like, which one? Bro? Like, what day is it? Who the fuck knows? Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, he uh, he released a car into space or from space into our atmosphere, another planet's atmosphere. Yes, I that's know, right. Either way. Yeah. And it was playing and David it, Bowie and, uh, and it's got the astronaut yes. in the driver's seat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they really wanted live audio on that. And uh, I was I was prepared to deliver. But, uh, you know, old boy Elon Musk, he fucking stiffed me, man. I mean, you know, he he's one of those people like he didn't get rich by by writing a lot of checks. And I, I did this awesome prototype. I had it working, everything and came time to pay. And all of a sudden, you know, he skipped town. He's like, oh, you know, uh, I'm shutting down the facilities here. and uh, We're moving to Texas, uh, blah, blah, blah. Like so, you know. OK. And now you brought yeah. that technology to Bezos and, uh, and now you're going to space. That's pretty cool. Yeah, That's exactly. exciting. When are you going? Oh no! I've we already went, sir. I, oh, I came back, back I again. Refreshed, yeah. I, I am what we call space refreshed. Okay. Uh, which for a lot of you, you're not going to really know what that means. But basically, if you're familiar with the concept of how there's no gravity in space and your 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 skeletal skeletal structure, it's a hard one to say. Kind of like separates a little bit from one another. Sure. Uh, so yeah. So it's like so you just got to figure it's like just the the best slowest deepest stretch that you've ever had that's kind of space refreshed 
Interesting. Interesting. It's the best way I could describe it to, once again, you lay people. I am said lay people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever... So, getting on Elon Musk real quick, just on a little side note here. Did you ever... Uh, I have recent, only recently become a, uh, aware of the story of his... Uh, I guess you'd call her his ex. Um, I know they're kind of on again, off again. Uh, Grimes. Um, okay, yeah. Have you read the story of her trying to float a houseboat down the Mississippi River? <laughs> While apparently on a bunch of amphetamines writing her next Holy album at the same shit. time or some shit, dude. What a wild <laughs> ride that woman has had in her life. Yeah. Talk about there and back again. Her life sounds like the plot to an A24 film. It really does. And that's more or less my <laughs> point. I, I mean, you know, Elon Musk be damned. Like, I get it where, where he's at in the world. But uh, just like, how did she get from point A to point B? Like, that's such well, a crazy artist is, journey. Yeah, apparently, from what I understand, she comes from a very privileged and wealthy family as well. Oh, So I think okay. it's one of those things where it's just she was... She and her family is rich enough to do crazy weird shit like that, right? Got it. Got it. She could just go yeah. out there and decide to take a houseboat down the Mississippi River without any kind of repercussions. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're out there, listeners, and you're curious about what the fuck we're talking about, go ahead and Google Grimes <laughs> Mississippi River Houseboat Adventure because uh, it's a ride. <laughs> the, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you phrase it like that, it sounds like a new Disneyland ride. Grimes I mean, Mississippi Houseboat River ride. <laughs> yeah. With as many drugs as she could have been on at that particular time, she probably <laughs> thought it was, in fact, a Disney uh, Disney ride. So she was approaching it as such. That was no. real? Holy shit. Right. I had no idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did I marry Elon, too? Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Sobering <laughs> up. Did, they, even get, did they get formally married journey. or did he just knock her up? I don't know. That's a valid question. Um yeah, and then of course their kids, a uh, bunch of numbers and and uh... <laughs> QX twenty four hyperlink whatever yeah. the fuck THX eleven thirty eight exclamation point exclamation point yeah who the fuck knows um, I wish them both the best uh, this is a fun intro uh, Jason we got a movie to talk about this week what do you got for us Ryan this week we are looking at Spike Lee's Crooklyn that's right from nineteen ninety four. Google has this as her teacher mother, Carolyn, played by Alfrey Woodard, and her jazz musician father, Woody, played by Delroy Lindo, worry over monthly bills. Grade schooler student Troy Carmichael, played by Zelda Harris, banters and bonds with her four brothers. Against her will, Troy is sent to her aunt's southern home for a summer visit, but when she returns to her bustling Brooklyn neighborhood, she learns that a family member is gravely ill. Already mature, Troy is forced to face to some... This is the weirdest description. I just want to make sure I'm reading this exactly as it is. Already mature, Troy is forced to face to some very grown-up facts about life and loss. Google, I would like to talk to you and your copywriters uh, for that last sentence. Hey, here's the thing, dude. Uh, that that uh, that summary is longer than the movie itself, I think. That, <laughs> that's why I started <laughs> laughing. That's not. That's actually the entire movie from beginning yeah. to end. Yeah. That's literally uh, the entire... Thanks they for just, listening on Esoterica Cinema. We'll see you next week. Hey, that was a great discussion. We had a great time. <laughs> Random number generator. What are we watching next week? <laughs> this, is, this is how IMDb has it. Ready for this? Spike Lee's vibrant, semi-autobiographical portrait of a school teacher, her stubborn jazz musician husband, and their five kids living in Brooklyn in 1973. That's it. <laughs> that's that's much better yeah Ta-da. also uh 
Google has this at two hours and 24 minutes, which is very much not the case. Right. And I saw that and I was, uh, you know, budgeting for said time and uh, they, they didn't give me that. It wasn't even quite two hours. So I don't know what, yeah. what Google's talking about. They just tacked on the extra 20 minutes for how long it was going to take you. They were like budgeting in the time for you to read the summary they were about to give you, I think. <laughs> like, well, 20 minutes to read the summary and then two hours for the movie. We'll just throw that in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, is, uh, this was uh, something. So I, I believe this was my pick. Um, this kind of comes on the heels of Malcolm X and Jungle Fever um, in the early 90s era of Spike Lee. Um, you know, this uh, had a budget of $14 million. And then right after this, he goes on to make clockers and get on the bus. So a uh, lot of bangers, um, some misses, I think, box office wise. Uh, we're going to get into some of that. Uh, but Jason, as always, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, I'm going to be happy to discuss that with you in plenty of detail, as always, right after we listen to the trailer for Crooklyn. Sorry, Gray. You sorry, why? Sorry I called your mother a hawk. And you sorry about teasing me about being left back three times, about being on welfare, about me and my brothers having three different fathers. All right, already. I said I was sorry. This time, Spike Lee takes a whole new look at growing up in his old neighborhood. Is the TV on? No! I'm crazy because I got five of y'all. Ow! Mommy! That have run me stark raving mad. Somebody left the toilet seat up. I almost fell in again. Shut up! You flat chested witch. I gotta eat this. Black eyed peas have calcium. All the calcium in the world ain't gonna make up for this nasty taste. Can I have some tricks? No, please! Say no, you idiot! Give it up! Daddy doesn't want to fight and yell. All Daddy wants to do is play his music. In a place called Crooklyn. And stay on my got All it took to keep it together was a little love, peace, and soul. Alfre Woodard, Delroy Lindo, and introducing Zelda Harris. That's what family's for. Gotta stick together, right? Right. Crooklyn, a Spike Lee joint. All right, Ryan. So uh, we'll go ahead and go into detail on this, but I'm going to say I found myself pleasantly surprised by this film. I did not. Surprised how? Well, I was surprised because I've. So I actually went back and looked at Spike Lee's filmography because I had the notion that, like, I hadn't seen a lot of his films. And while that's true, I've actually seen a few more than I thought. I yes. think after Crooklyn, I've now seen about eight of his films, which is pretty good because I thought I was closer in the like five range. Dude's cranked some movies out, man. This guy stays working. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what I mean by surprising is that I think it's fair to say that Spike Lee is a bit of an angry filmmaker, generally speaking. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that he makes very pointed statements through, you know, especially about race relations and past oppression of African-Americans and all of that. And this was not an angry film at all. Like, this was almost kind of like his version of, like, a studio family dramedy, so to speak. And yeah. I was very kind of taken aback by that. It was a much more lighthearted affair than I expected from a Spike Lee film. So he was making this, again, like I was saying at the top of the show, he, he made this on the heels of Malcolm X. And it's my understanding that he did this as a palate cleanser of sorts because of how heavy... Uh, that movie was and then dealing with the race relations of uh, jungle fever right before that. Um, 
you know, this was just kind of meant to be a lighthearted affair. And I believe he went a little over budget on Malcolm X. And I think they maybe reined him in a little bit on what they were going to give him money wise. And so this was just an easy story for him to tell easy way for him to get back in the game, you know, get right back out there, still shoot some stuff. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. I will also add to what you're saying uh, that not only is, uh, you know, Spike Lee definitely does have a certain vibe and so much as that he handles uh, some heavy topics uh, to your point. Um, and, and this kind of was a little more lighthearted, a family affair, so to speak, a little smaller film, but also he's, um, he's a very, how do I say this? A very recognizable auteur in so much as that when you put on a Spike Lee film, I can tell you in five minutes, I'm watching a Spike Lee film and sure. That's both good and bad sometimes, you know, like Robert Rodriguez or or some of these movie, uh, these filmmakers that are so um, distinct in their filmmaking styles um, yeah. and their their movie tricks and, and their character development and so forth. Like you really kind of have to be in the mood to watch some of those because it's just so. Uh, you know, cornered in what it is. Um, and and uh, if you're in the mood for that, it's the best version of that thing. But if you're not, you're not going to be into it at all. And so I found myself, uh, you know, really hit and miss with Spike Lee just based on the vibe I was in when I watched each of these films. And there's still a litany of them that I haven't seen. Like I said, this dude stays working. Every time you think you've seen a lot of Spike Lee films, get on IMDb. I'm here to tell you, you have not seen a lot of Spike Lee films. <laughs> he's still cranking them out, too, you know, with Black Klansman and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. But yeah. Which is uh, one that we have on our list as well. Really hoping that we end up pulling that one someday. Yeah, I feel like I say that about a lot of films. I loved Malcolm X, though. That's one of my all-time favorite films. Just, uh, you know, uh, because it, it's so quintessentially in his wheelhouse. You know, if you're going to sure. be that kind of a filmmaker and you're going to handle those kind of heavy topics, like, hey, that's that's the biopic to get, right? That's the card to pull. So, and he nailed it. He did a great yeah. job. And fucking Denzel, dude. That's like golden era Denzel Washington. You know, <laughs> pre-training day when he was like, I mean, he was coming out swinging for the fences with that one. So uh, anyway. Yeah, for me, it's a uh, do the right thing, man. I, I do the right thing probably in my top 25. That's the one I've uh, seen the most. Higher. Yeah. That's the one I've seen the most. There's some quintessential uh, Spike films I haven't seen. I still haven't seen his uh, what you might call his first film, School Days. Um, and then oh, also, sure. um, you yeah, know, I, 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 I believe he did one before that. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen either oh, of those. I haven't seen Jungle Fever. Like I haven't seen some of his newer ones, from Black Klansman to some of the smaller ones he did. Yeah, actually, I looked at it. The last movie I, I watched of his was Inside Man, which was such a boring and just like I mean, talk about just a mediocre by the numbers film. I man. hated like, that movie. I same dude. I I hated how aggressively vanilla it was. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't one of those films that you hate because like it takes some chances and fails or anything like it. It was just literally like it was Ron Howard one hundred and one filmmaking, just checking off all of the boxes with no passion. Dude, yeah, I mean, and I went into it expecting, like, because the way it was packaged and sold to me by the studios was, like, you're going to get Spike Lee's version of, a, like, a Soderbergh movie or, yeah. a, or a Michael Mann film, you know, kind of like a, a bank heist thriller, car scenes, shoot 'em up, you know, we're doing a robbery, this whole thing was set up ahead of time, blah, 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 we're going to do some time jumps. Dude, I'm all in. You son of a bitch, I'm in. You know, and yet here we are hiding in the walls of a bank for however long and like nothing was really pulled out on me. And like, yeah, so dry. I was just like yeah. so bored. But uh, 
But that wasn't this. This was, was, not. This was a good. trip back to 1973. This was an autobiographical journey into Spike Lee's actual family life, uh, written by his him and his siblings. And um, Correct, yeah, yeah. And you know, it just uh, there's a couple things. I, uh, uh, there's a lot of things I loved about this movie, but uh, the soundtrack was fantastic. We're gonna get into that. Um, when this came out in '94, um, you know, being peak Lee. Uh, you know, this this kind of harnessed an era of of filmmaking and music and, and style and, and uh, Afrocentric culture that uh, I mean, I was in my early teens, uh, late uh, preteens, if you will. And so I was in my formative years and um, just discovering I know this sounds really silly, but just discovering like Yo MTV raps and uh BET 106 and Park and all this shit and like Wu-Tang 36 Chambers had just come out Ready to Die had just come out Illmatic had just come out all these things had just come out and then here comes Spike Lee dropping all these uh bangers on us and um yeah he kind of took me took me over with some of these so I was I was glad to finally get to Crooklyn Definitely dude same well uh, I'll tell you what man let's go ahead and actually dive into this thing I just need to know a good place where we should start At the beginning uh, in 1973 <laughs> if you say so, Ryan. So when the film starts out after a quick credit sequence featuring animated font that is just absolutely dripping in 90s aesthetic, we open on a medium wide shot of a young man standing on a balcony featuring rusted wrought iron fencing that only barely seems to pass modern architectural standards of safety. A breeze sways inelegant white drapes in the open window behind him as the young man shouts, On your marks, get set, go! Setting up a technically impressive and complicated shot wherein the camera pulls, booms, tilts, and pans all at the same time while on a moving crane. The camera proceeds to track three kids racing down the street at a three-quarters profile view before cutting to a straight-ahead shot of the same kids running towards us in slow motion. Now, Ryan, interesting thing about this credit sequence is from there we see a lot of children playing these different games in the street, right? And that in and of itself kind of harkens back to, like, a time where kids played in the street. Go figure, right? Like, I have a daughter and, like, all of the everything she plays is, like, digitally online and computers and shit. And it was really effective to just see a lot of these different games from hopscotch to dominoes to jump rope, setting up the fact that this is sort of like a buoyant street. You know, for whatever the problems are, people, generally speaking, are enthusiastic. You kind of get the, you know, laughter of children, so to speak. And there's a vibrancy. And that's kind of reflected in the in the set design and the coloring as well. Sure. Yeah, this now, kind of felt like a uh, bit of a prequel to Do the Right Thing, right? Because, like, Do the Right Thing kind of took por- uh, place, uh, you know, against the, the backdrop of a bunch of brownstones in, in Brooklyn or a New York neighborhood. Um, you know, yeah. uh, kids playing in, in fire hydrants that were broken open, you know, um, house parties or block parties, music kind of coming out of windowsills, various characters and very of various ethnicities, you know, Puerto Ricans and uh, Afrocentric characters and this and that. You had Italians and, you know, all these different um, uh, amalgamations or mishmash or melting pot, if you will, that we know as late 80s, early 90s. And, and in this case, 70s, New York. Um 1973, it's important to note, uh, you know, we're still in the Vietnam War at this point. Um, Coming out of that, Nixon, you know, again, we're kind of back into that situation, just like we were just a couple weeks ago in the last detail. This is the same time period. So, yeah. And uh, and then there's also the uh, of course, the uh, quintessential nerdy white neighbor, right, with the giant uh, Coke bottle glasses that 
I don't know, looks like uh, Arnie the Strongest Man in the World or something like that from Beat and Beat back in the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. It totally did. Um, they called him Tony was, Eyes. You know, yeah, yeah, and there was that whole subplot. And yeah, it's funny that you actually bring up his character name too because that was the other thing I was going to mention, which is that's one of the hallmarks of at least early Spike Lee films is his very creative use of character names, you know? So you've got Tony Eyes here, and it reminds me of in Do the Right Thing, for example, like where you would have a character whose name is Bugging Out with capitals right. on the B&O. Like, that's his name. It's not <laughs> yep. a nickname. Like, his name is Bugging Out. That's what they call it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so even though, you know, we have some more traditional names like, you know, Carolyn and Woody for, you know, the main characters, again, you know, those sort of – Spike Lee's not afraid to sort of play with his ancillary characters, you know? I think sure. that uh, it kind of heightens his world a little bit. It kind of gives it – a little bit of a larger than life feel while still sort of also being grounded in reality, but it's, it's just a little bit of a heightened reality. And I think small details from character names to the sort of exaggerated uh, color palettes that he plays with and things like that all kind of serve to heighten that. I feel like that kind of is a New York thing too, right? Like when I think of mafia, when I think of long Island or, or uh, Queens or whatever, you know, uh, any gangster film I've ever seen, everybody's got like a nickname, you know, even going back to like Dick Tracy, you know, <laughs> everyone's got, you know, a cool <laughs> New York gangster nickname and, uh, Tony eyes, That's you true. know, you see someone with a distinct character, um, you know, how many Tonys do you think there exist in Brooklyn at this time? So <laughs> you kind of have to just, you know, make, make them distinct and, and no one's trying to learn a last name. So, uh, th this is where you go with it. Definitely. Well, you know what's funny, too, is that actually just uh, brings to mind the fact that you're absolutely right in terms of that. But what's interesting is that I think in terms of visual aesthetic, this is a much brighter and more colorful New York than we're accustomed to seeing, you know? Sure. Like, Especially you, you talk about era. all those mob. Yeah, like you talk about those mob movies, and then all of a sudden I start thinking about Scorsese films, and it's like, oh wow! I mean, those are pretty muted color palettes that he's playing with, you know, like a lot of a lot of grays and a lot of browns and overcast days and things like that, right? To sort of heighten that seedy feeling, right? But even do um, the right yeah, thing. Spike Lee's New what York. It's that? very yeah. Spike Lee's New York is very bright. There's a lot of colors. There's a lot of very loud characters, big personalities. Sure. Uh, you know, all of that, all of that kind of coming together to, like I said, present this sort of heightened reality that, and who knows, maybe, you know, I honestly, you know, born and bred in Los Angeles. I didn't grow up in New York. Uh, maybe that's less exaggerated than uh, we might think, you know, it's both. So both those New Yorks exist. I've been to New York. Yeah. I've lived in New York and, um, there is, <laughs> of course you have. You've lived everywhere. I have. No, yeah. <laughs> this is a real thing. Chuck it up on the list. Dude, if we have any, by the way, if we have any dedicated listeners that can start doing a tally every time Ryan says he's lived somewhere or he's from somewhere. I would love in I the offseason, uh, which is forthcoming here, I would love in the offseason to come up with a Esoterica Cinema drinking game. And um, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of reoccurring themes that people could take shots or, or sips of beer to. Uh, <laughs> You know, things like, to your point, or I will also add, uh, are things that we... As <laughs> so someone, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, uh, I edit the podcast, and, and I could say there are reoccurring phrases and themes throughout this. And if anyone would like to put that together and gift that to us, we'll come up with something for you. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every time Jason and Ryan fuck up the improv at the top of the show. The, excuse me. Yep. Take a drink. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, both these New Yorks exist. There is the gritty, seedy, hazy, gray 
um, desolate, hopeless New York. And there's also the bright sun. New York gets sunny and hot as fuck in the summertime. Hence the broken open fire hydrants that you see in a lot of films and, you know, the uh, really heavy orange tones. I mean, I could think of several New York films, not off the top of my head of anything in particular, but I could think of seeing I know I've seen. New York and Manhattan represented very sunny and hot and bleak and stark. People wiping the sweat off their brow. It's not very air conditioned. Uh, a lot of those buildings are old and not ventilated very well. Do the right thing was definitely like that. And, um, you know, uh, I could think of, uh, you know, plenty of sunny days in New York where you wished it wasn't quite so sunny, but it also gets very bleak and yeah. stark and hazy and gray. Oh, that's so, right. Yeah. Do the right thing, of course, begins on the hottest day of the year. So correct. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. They're all breaking open the fire hydrants and shit trying to cool. Sure. Off, so, yeah. And so, so something else I'll bring up really quickly and then we'll get back into the narrative of the film here is that uh, something I, I wanted to look up very, very quickly is um, how old Spike Lee was because He's been so his first directorial endeavor I found out was White Lines by Melly Mel. He did the music video for that. Mind blown. Okay. Had no idea. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Um Dude's 37 when he made this. So in my wow. mind, I'm thinking uh Crooklyn 94. This is still young Spike Lee. He's still got a huge chapter of his filmmaking career ahead of him. Uh no, man. Dude's pushing like 70 years old right now. Uh, crushing wow, it on the sidelines nuts. of the Knicks. Yeah, I had no idea. So um, he wasn't, uh, I mean, he was in his like early 30s when he broke out with Do the Right Thing and Mo Betta Blues. He was still, I mean, way past his 20s and all of that. Wow, um, I learned a crazy. lot about Spike Lee when uh, when I watched this movie. Because we all think we know about Spike Lee, but uh, I had to do some deep diving to find out a little more about this fella. But uh, anyway. Dude, well, that reminds me of the old, uh, what was it, the MTV, you think you know, but you have no idea, where they would interview <laughs> the celebrities. What was that called? <sighs> Man, I forget, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah, think yeah. you know, but you have no idea. Have yeah. no idea. <laughs> I mean, you Anyways, think you yeah. know the title of that segment but you have no idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah no i i totally someone's in their car right now well. in omaha nebraska swearing at their radio that knows the answer they're like <laughs> it's goddamn mtv this whatever i don't know <laughs> sorry that person so getting back to the film here we do have uh we're in finally introduced to the family proper which we get dad played by Delroy Lindo character named Woody blowing on a Viking horn to call everyone in for dinner. And uh, this is definitely a much more, uh, what do you want to call it? Working class, let's say dinner table than a lot of what we've been accustomed to seeing represented in films. And I think that's where a lot of the charm comes from. You know, this is like, uh, you know, probably like the African-American version of like a Roseanne type of family or something like that, you know, sure. we're on the socioeconomic ladder and everything that goes along with that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, well, let me ask you this, Ryan. Like, did you did you grow up in a big family? Do you have a big family? I have uh, two other brothers. I'm a family of five total. Okay, yeah, that's there. So, Ish. did you have did you have uh, did you have any like bickering and stuff like that at the table, or did you have like a no always, polite, yeah. civilized family? No, no, we yeah, we we definitely were. Um, you know, that Roseanne kind of middle America, uh, nuclear family yeah. household with definitely some. Arguing and bickering and fighting and so forth. <laughs> Dude, I, honestly, like, I didn't even realize that, like, people actually ate at their dining table for the longest time. I thought that was just something you had for show. 
Yeah. And then every now and then, like, you know, like my mom would be like, guys, I'm sick of this. We're eating at the dinner table tonight. And then we would all sit there and like just in awkward silence. And then like, OK, cool. We bought ourselves six months of, of eating in front of the TV. <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, my mom's very Midwest, so she was down to clown at the dinner table. That's that was <laughs> some things are held sacred, yeah. Yeah, but no, it was just me and my sister. We definitely fought a lot, but uh so I yeah, I can imagine if there was three more of us that fought as much as me and my sister did, it would have looked a lot like this and probably even worse to be completely honest. But you got um <laughs> you definitely got some uh some haves and have not vibes. Um, you know, it's it was hard sure. times in New York back then, and it was expensive to live. And we see some of that dynamic played out right here, and then we see some more of that dynamic played out at the end of the film. So, uh, you know, they're sitting down for dinner, and then you've got their friends that they were playing with at the start of the film gathered by the window to their yeah. dining room, peering in, uh, and they're all kind of like licking their chops at the food that they've got on the table, saying, oh, Correct, they got yeah. black-eyed peas. Oh, man, they got chicken, this and that. And uh, they're really jealous of this, you know, good eating dinner that the uh, this family's uh, got on their table. But then by the end of the film, we see that, um, you know, they, they're actually struggling as well. So uh, I'll... Yeah, I know, mean, that's I, kind I, of the I, thing about life, right? Like, everything's sort of, like, relative you right, know, when it comes right. to sort of status. All to the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Sure. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, and then from there, you know, we see mom and dad, like, after the whole sort of dinner's wrapped up and everything, they're going to leave for the night. And uh, they tell the kids to clean up, and we're going to do a quick cut to the next morning. And it turns out, oh, they didn't clean up. So mom's going to walk around beating their ass, literally waking them up, telling them to get downstairs. We get this awesome steady cam shot of her kind of going around and following them down the stairs, uh, chasing them around, trying to get them to do their part. And shortly after that, we see mom talking to the daughter, uh, the daughter, Troy. And one of the other things, too, Ryan, actually, I wanted to ask you about before we continue is. Do you feel like this film has a strict protagonist? And if so, who is it? I think this is all told through the eyes of the daughter, Troy, if that's what you're asking me. It was it was kind of interesting because. I think that eventually it kind of settles into being Troy's story, but I felt like the first half, it was almost like the family itself was sort of the protagonist, you know, the way it sort of jumped around and gave you everybody's different perspective, right? Like a lot of times, you know, when you see these family films, whether they're comedies, dramas, otherwise, we see the family generally through the eyes of one of the members, right? We still see all the different, you know, family members, but generally it's like, okay, we're following this person and it's their point of view that we're going to latch onto in terms of how we feel about this family. Right. So if we're following the sullen teenager that thinks her family's stupid, we're going to think they're stupid. If we're following the, you know, dad who's trying hard despite everything, you know, that sort of affects the way that we feel about the family. And so I think that initially it's very much sort of balancing around like I almost felt like to start it was the mom's story for a while I felt like Carolyn was sort of being set up as the protagonist and then eventually it sort of shifts over into Troy's story yeah I mean Spike Lee does that often I think you know telling an ensemble he's good at an ensemble cast situation right like that's he you know uh, he bounces around back and forth to different because his characters are so robust that 
it's not necessarily a bad thing to go spend some time with Samuel L. Jackson as a DJ in that loft area, you know, radio uh, situation and um, do the right thing, for example, um, or follow Michael Rappaport around down the street and see what adventures he gets into. Uh, but in this particular case, um, the only character that you really go off with solo is the Troy character, the young daughter uh, played yeah. by Zelda Harris. Um, you are in the house. You're bouncing around with the characters. You'll go to the stoop um, and see the boys with uh, Tommy Lala singing and stuff and doing this and that. And then uh, Tony Eyes comes out. So uh, there's all these little uh, characters popping in and out of uh, frame and this and that. And, and you can stick with them for a scene or so. But I think when you leave the block or when you go somewhere like to the bodega, for example, which is a scene coming up. Um, to go shopping or go get supplies. You're almost always with Troy. So that's why yeah. I kind of felt like, and then the film ends, like that's you said, to, to your point, uh, the, the film ends very prominently with Troy and how yes. uh, that the events that are about to proceed that you're about to talk about affect her character and, and where that goes from there. So it's my understanding as well that um, Spike Lee's sister was the main writer on this. So yeah. uh, Joy, uh, Joey Lee. So, um, which, by the way, we just have to call this out. Like, like, did you end up seeing that she was the aunt that picks her up from the other aunt? No, no, I totally didn't actually. Yeah. That was her? For whatever whatever reason, she was credited in the front credits, but not in the back credits. Very Weird. weird. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. But here's the thing, dude. It was so funny because when she comes on, when she goes and picks her up, I'm like, who the hell is that actress? I know that actress. I know that face. But I don't know that face like this. But I know that face. And then I thought about it for 30 <laughs> seconds and I was like, that's Spike Lee's face. But like with makeup. And I was like, oh, this has to be his sister. And like I made a note and then after the film like took seven sure minutes shit. to like look it up. And I was like, yes, of course it is. There was no way it wasn't. Like <laughs> she looks so much like him. It was, it was very much reminded me of when we did Booksmart. And uh, Beanie Feldstein popped up and it was like, oh, it's Jonah Hill with breasts and long hair. Right. She must be his sister. And sure right. enough, it was. Sure enough, it was. <laughs> and then we also get young Spike Lee with a whole plot line about liking the Knicks and like going to see the Knicks finals and shit. Like that's yeah. uh, that's a whole other thing altogether. Yeah. I was like, oh, that kid with the glasses must be Spike. And then, you know, the whole Knicks thing. I'm like, that's got to be Spike, you know? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, the next scene, uh, it shows these kids, like, Dad brings home some cake and ice cream, and there's the one brother who, like, hasn't finished his Black Eyed Peas. Uh, we're going to go ahead. I have a clip of that we're going to listen to real quick. Come on, Mommy. Why I got to eat this? Black Eyed Peas have calcium. All the calcium in the world ain't gonna make up for this nasty taste. It might have made up for your broke arm. Oh, come on, Mom. I broke my arm because I just got hurt. Besides, this is gross. Nasty. It is not nasty. Everybody else likes it. You're gonna eat. They're all crazy. Yeah, and you sitting here waiting to eat, so. Yes, anybody? I got ice cream and salad. You want some? I do. <laughs> There's a place over here. Now, Ryan, the one reason that I kind of wanted to play that clip is uh, I was very interested by the score and kind of what that informed about the film, because, 
you know, the as far as the soundtrack is concerned, right? Which, by the way, I know we do have some casual listeners, and just to put this out there, in case there are casual listeners that don't know the difference between a soundtrack and a score, the score is music that was written specifically for the film. Soundtrack is any song or music that was written outside of the film and then brought into later. So just so you're aware. So there's the soundtrack and the score. The, the, he utilizes both, Spike Lee does over the course of this film. So the soundtrack is all these old soul songs, and they're great. It reminds you of everything you've heard on, like, out here, K-Earth 101 would be, like, the oldie station, right? Do you have an oldie station out there that's popular? Dude, I don't know. I haven't listened to the radio in, like, 10 years. You still listen to the radio? <laughs> yeah, dude, what's wrong with the radio? The radio's awesome. We're basically making radio. Like, this oh, is talk radio man. that we do. We on just release it on a streaming platform because what are we going to do? Get hired by people? They're going to pay us to do this shit? Yeah, I don't know, man. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I, since since the whole universe is where the music has been brought to me in a small device for the low, low price of $10 a month, I, uh, <laughs> I gladly listen to what I want to when I well, want no, to. Well, no, don't get me wrong, dude. I mean, I listen to, I listen to all of my streaming platforms. Like I have my Spotify playlist and I listen to the hell out of Spotify, but, yeah, but you, when you I'm live in, in Los when, Angeles, like don't you deal with like reception issues? You go behind a mountain and it gets staticky. Like, is that nostalgic for you? Yeah, like, really. is that like, oh, you'd be okay. surprised. No, no, no. It's not really until you get to like, honestly, until you get close, like, like, I don't know, halfway to San Diego that you start to lose reception for a lot of the Los Angeles stations. Like they have quite powerful signals. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, you go from the west side to the east side, and you're, you've you've got K. You know, back in the day, I would have listened to K Rock. These days, I listen to KLOS. Yeah, like commercials for the local lawyer, or jewelry store, or dude, I know, love uh, that shit, man. It, it inspires <laughs> a lot of our sketches, dude. Like, and I don't Touché. know, like, Touché. I, I, I I'll come out and say this, dude. Like, I know this is not everybody's cup of tea. Like, I actively enjoy commercials. Not every commercial, right? But like. A commercial is a 30 second story, dude. And it's almost like it's almost like the challenge of like telling a joke in like a tweet with 140 <laughs> characters or something. Dude. Yeah, like, sure. you've got 30 seconds to tell a story. It can be a heartfelt story. It could be a joke. It could be informative. It could be this. It could be that. But like. Go. Yeah, but nine times out of ten, it's does like their best to tell, and then and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and like, but I don't know, dude. Like, there are there are commercials that like have stuck with me that like I still <laughs> think are hilarious. Yeah, and even ones that aren't like, like we have we have a what is it? Uh, it's not pirate. Uh, television but like cable access there was cable access and like bullshit cable comedy central back in the day where you would have regional commercials and that's where you get shit like crazy gideons dude which oh, is this man. guy who's lives in, who has a store he's not around anymore but he sells tvs out of a bum-ass warehouse in downtown los angeles crazy and his commercial gideons. is him throwing tvs out of his warehouse why yes. because he's crazy that's why he has oh, great prices, because he's crazy. And he also throws them out of the warehouse. These are amazing. These are cultural <laughs> landmarks and touchstones that exist because of this format. I love Yeah, but they don't exist anymore. Like now you get one eight seven seven cars for kids or whatever the Which fuck. Which is great. Like, Which is yeah. great. We make fun of how the guy sounds like a child molester. And why do they let those kids around him? He's clearly yeah. of ill repute. Well, I mean, yeah. One eight hundred, 
cash now, whatever. I don't know, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And then all those like, uh, you know, and then, and then it inspires these parodies. Right. So like, you know, get cash now turns into like cash for bones on Futurama. And like, <laughs> I love that sketch. Yeah. <laughs> the hip bones sec- connected to the cash bone. <laughs> Send me your fingernails on Family Guy, all that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and oh, like all those shit. exist because commercials exist, and we can make fun of them. Yeah, but anymore, and it's more like Toyota Thon or like you know Honda Days or something. You know, I don't know. Well, yeah, 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 but you know they're doing nice things out there for people. Those helpful Honda people, they seem nice. Bring back the shitty commercials. That's what I need. I mean, <laughs> Regional I need cable commercials, dude. They're the yes. best. They're the absolute best. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> That's where you get the like too... Cal Worthington Ford commercials. Yeah, go see Cal. I love that yeah. with the fucking lion or tiger. Or the f- what the fuck was that? Yeah, to... exactly. <laughs> Dude, we, our, our international <laughs> listeners are like, dude, what's going on in America right now? This is bananas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For anybody that doesn't know, by the way, there, there, I don't know when it came about, but some time ago there was just this unspoken agreement that if you own a car lot, you're going to have to make a really shitty commercial where you walk around in a ridiculous costume or with a ridiculous animal and off shocking your wares. And nobody knows why this is, but you just have to do it if you own a car lot. Well, I just kind of always imagine that as being like this anchorman scenario wherein like everybody's wearing leisure suits and like sitting around because <laughs> car deal car salesmen are notoriously like kind of slimy and a little off footing. And if I could only imagine in the 70s when cocaine quaaludes were a thing, that, uh, <laughs> you know, this all was like this completely different world. We all in the 80s as well It's a completely different world we all lived in. So it's like. Dude, okay, our advertising budget this month is 20 grand. We're doing great. You guys are selling a lot of things. Uh, Tony, what do you got over there? He's like, uh, well, here's the bad news. I spent 15 grand of it on cocaine. Uh, but here's the good news. The guy I bought the Coke from gave us a free tiger. So I thought maybe like we get the tiger in there somehow. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, the manager's all high on Quaaludes and he's like, dude, that sounds fucking awesome. Like, let's get the tiger in there. Next thing you know, go see Cal. Everybody, if you're out there, <laughs> YouTube, go see Cal. Uh, <laughs> go check out these automotive commercials because they are absolutely cocaine and Quaalude fueled. There is a hundred percent chance that that is what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and and to this day i can't hear the words you won't get a lemon without singing that glorious song in my head do you know that you won't get a lemon song ryan i do not know that song where you won't get a lemon i wouldn't have got a lemon at toyota of orange where you won't get a lemon i wouldn't have got a lemon at Toyota of Orange. Every thing. single person in Los Angeles right now is bobbing along and knows exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, but 100% like 95% of, of our listeners are of outside of LA not knowing what the fuck we're okay, talking so about. Okay, so everybody, since you're on YouTube tangent. looking up Cal Worthington, go see Cal. <laughs> go look up Toyota of Orange and listen to the glorious theme song. Also look up You oh Won't Get God. a Lemon. <laughs> we are so far away from Bed Stuy Brooklyn <laughs> right now. <laughs> but hey, look, I mean, fuck it. Spike Lee gets his nostalgia overload. We're getting ours go, right dude. now. This is our 100%, own. 100%, man. This is how 100%. we were, were raised. Yes. In the surrounding valley areas of Los Angeles and the, you know, well, I'm not going to date myself, but yeah. 
It's, yeah. you know, back then, in the long, long ago, in the before times. <laughs> in the before times. <laughs> Speaking of nostalgia, I wondered if you thought the same thing. So there's the scene where Troy goes to the convenience store. It's the first time, not the second time. And there's just that shot of the woman, a rather large woman, dancing with what is a vi- rather small gentleman the store owner and she's just watching him slack jawed i also sat there watching them slack jawed and i was like i don't know why this visual is arresting but it is i kind of can't stop watching these people that don't look like they should dance together dance okay so yeah a couple things about that one um you know they were dressed in very dated 70s attire they they were they looked like rejects from soul train um the bodega that they were in um it was very vibrantly colored. I mean, it was just like every bright color you could imagine. Uh, lots of, you know, f- from that 70s era, though, that 70s orange, those 70s yellows that are so uh, specific to that era. And um, so there was a lot going on. It was like a low angle hero shot. And we just kind of hung with them like for a minute. Ready for this? You might already know this. And if you do, great. But if you don't, you know who that woman was? I, I, I don't know. That was RuPaul. What? Yep. Hot off the heels of her uh, uh, You Better Work supermodel single, which came out the year before this. Um, wow. I'll be completely honest. There was part of me that felt like there was a masculine vibe, but I didn't want to make assumptions and kind of just figured it was a you know larger girl that just maybe had a little bit of a masculine body type. And so wasn't about to make assumptions uh, move forward. But yeah, now that you no, say I was just going through the, I, can, the, I, can, uh, I can see that. I was going through the cast list and uh, stumbled across RuPaul was in this. And I was like, oh, is that? And sure as shit it was. So, uh, yeah, dope scene. Great song. Uh, great uh, vibe and everything. A lot of funky uh, to, to taking this conversation, unwinding it, going back uh, full circle. Um, this mu- movie was wall to wall soundtrack. And it was yeah. just, I mean, it really laid it on thick in the best possible way. You got Delphonics, you got the Shy Lights, you got Jimi Hendrix. Uh, the yeah, staple that great song. Like the, right after that, she's walking back home and we've got Hey Joe playing in the background. And that's yeah. when you know, we get like Vic getting arrested, which, by the way, the, the Vic character was kind of. Did you feel like that was a little undercooked as well? Like, Very. I feel like, yeah, I had like no I, idea what was going on there. I feel like there was a, a whole subplot scenes. that maybe got cut out of the film. I feel like they. Yeah. Like either there was supposed to be more there or. They unknowingly sort of leaned on their memories of him and like their brain kind of auto filled in gaps that didn't make it to the page, so so to speak. And I feel like it was actually like a very it could have been an interesting character. I feel like there was actually like a pretty interesting story behind him and. Uh, well, because every you know, the way time that they sort of revered in. him, the way he like introduced himself and everyone was sort of like, oh, it's Vic, it's the man. Like, right. But yeah, they just kind of just he's just kind of there. And yeah, I, I didn't understand his character in the context. Every single time on. he would pop up in the in the film, I didn't know what like because they would always introduce new information. Like, dude, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know until uh, they lost electricity um, later in act two uh, that he was their tenant. Um, in like that whole thing was a dynamic. I kind of missed out on that. Or it kind of got, you know, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Let you know, I had no idea that they owned the building and I right. was thinking That's what I'm like, saying. yeah, right. 
So, okay, yeah, they totally don't introduce that. And also, I guess owning property in New York meant something very different. Brooklyn, no less, meant something very different 20 however many years ago because there's no way a family that poor sh- should be owning a building. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's <laughs> welcome to the modern age. But, I mean, where... how would they have even gotten it in the first place is what I'm saying. Like, they don't have – like, you didn't – you obviously didn't need much collateral to buy an apartment building back then in Brooklyn, you probably which is did nuts. not. Yeah, you <laughs> probably didn't. Well, and Brooklyn was a shithole back then. It's been totally gentrified yeah. into a hipster paradise right now. But, uh, dude, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn – that's Marcy. I mean, Marcy Projects isn't far from there. That's where Jay Z was selling crack. I mean, like, and we're going into like the eighties and nineties. These were like, you know, crack, crack, and, and gangster havens and shit like that. Um, you know, this is this was not a good area uh, as yeah. much as it was normalized to them because they didn't know any difference. Uh, and I believe shortly after these uh, this era that we're in right now in 73, as we move forward into the late 70s and the 80s, it got even worse. And you had, um, you know, the power outage, which led to, uh, you know, the, the famous power outage. You had Summer of Sam, I think, coming hot on the heels of this, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was a lot going on in New York that. Just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, Times Square was a shithole um, filled with peep shows and, and strip clubs and stuff like that. Uh, it wasn't until much, much later that, uh, you know, we get the tourist friendly sex in the city vibe that uh, that everybody knows New York as now. But this was more akin to the Warriors, you know, <laughs> and, you know, they called it Brick City because apartments were being knocked over and, and insurance claims were being developed. And then gentrification mm-hmm. happened and, and big yeah. huge companies came and bought all this cheap ass land from these people. And uh, yeah, but it was cheap ass land back then. So I think that you could do this. Um, I think that there were probably programs that, uh, you know, were aimed at just getting people off the street and, and housing people and stuff like that. Now it's all about capitalism and profiteering, but uh, you know, and, and hedge fund companies, but um, yeah, I don't know, you know, specifically about how that would have gone down, but I definitely could see it going down. And uh, as this, as, as this is a biopic about Spike Lee's family, I'm led to believe that uh, that's real talk. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I agree with you. But and taking the it, conversation back again, this Vic character had no idea what was going on. <laughs> He's popping in and out, causing trouble, being arrested. I feel like they were using him as a catalyst for sympathy or empathy in, in certain areas. And that was the only way uh, area of this film that I felt like it it failed. Because anytime he would pop in and it was like, oh, Vic's getting arrested. I'm like, yeah, but who's this dude? Like what? You know, yeah. who is he to them? And like. Troy would always look upon him as like maybe like a male figure in her life, you know, like that's mm-hmm. some guy that she looks up to or whatnot. He's obviously ex-military, we find out later in the film, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so now up until now, the family's been all sort of, you know, getting along more or less in spite of the bickering and whatnot. But we see the first sign of marital strife uh, when, you know, Carolyn confronts. Woody about some bad checks that bounced and you know she's doing the bookkeeping and once again he wrote a check without telling her and I have a clip of that as well we're gonna listen to real quick surprise boys the big deal is I said no TV on a school night damn it the next guy job you need an education boy I will throw this idiot box out the window Troy that machine in the bathroom 
And then from there, there's actually a, a physical altercation that happens where, you know, Woody ends up uh, you know, sort of like twisting Carolyn's ankle on the staircase and she ends up throwing him out. And, you know, I think that's kind of the film does a great job of being honest about who these people are, you know, and still respecting their humanity. You know, they're not perfect people. And again, you know, they're not a perfect family, but the love's there and, you know, they're not afraid to sort of show some of the warts. Um, but also, you know, with an understanding that that's, you know, kind of how a lot of families are, um, you know, not everyone has the idyllic scenario and, um, you know, different personalities and whatnot. So, but just the fact that it, it, you know, it, it never really paints any one character out to be a villain or a hero for that matter. You know, everybody's looked upon with sympathy. Everybody kind of has their own role and they all have very much love for each other in spite of, you know, the constant bickering and sometimes physical altercations. Now, the next morning, Woody brings flowers for Carolyn and some candy for the kids. He's trying to make nice-nice. He leaves, and that's when Carolyn makes Troy go to the store to get some groceries with some food stamps, actually. And she protests. You know, people are going to make fun of me for using the food stamps. She's like, whatever, we got to eat, da-da-da, go get it. She goes down to the bodega, and there's actually the store owner there who is chastising another girl who got caught stealing while Troy herself, instead of using the food stamps, probably out of embarrassment, is going to try to steal the groceries as well. Or, you know, she might just want to keep them to you know, sell them, use them later, whatever it is. But she's going to try to steal some food instead of paying for it and even gets called out by the girl who got, you know, caught herself. Uh, but the store owner just kind of lets her go. I don't know. And I couldn't tell, Ryan, do you know, like, did the store owner not know that she was stealing or did he just Didn't seem like it. look the other way because of who he liked her specifically or something like No, it didn't seem like it. He seemed it. very I think that, willfully ignorant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz he helps her like that that girl like knocks all the food out of her shirt that she's hiding in the food yeah. in and, like it's all over the ground. And then the store owner literally helps her pick the food up and he gives it back to her. He's like, I'm so sorry, miss. So yeah, but like he would have believe... seen her pay for it or not. Like he should have known. Like this is a small store. He was right there. Yeah. I don't know that he even saw that she was that she came out of the store. He might have just thought she was out on the street, you know, and got uh, some of her things knocked out of her hand. I think he might have even been so worked up by the confrontation that he was having with this other girl and so hyper-focused that he wasn't even worried about this other lady. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry, miss. Here, here's your things. Get out of here. You, I'll get yeah. you, blah, 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 you know? And it was, the focus was so on this other woman or this uh, young girl, rather, that uh, had been shot, caught shoplifting that uh, maybe he just overlooked this situation because he was so blinded with rage, hyper-focused on yeah. the other situation. I don't know. Could it be. wasn't really, be. you know, it wasn't really made clear. I, I'll give you that. So um, uh, just that she got away with it. Yeah, by the way, we also haven't mentioned uh, Spike Lee's character in this movie, which yep. is a very odd character where him and a vet who has at least no hand, if not no arm, uh, just kind of go around huffing glue and trying to rob the kids for cash. Yep. A very, yeah. very weird character. Uh, again, I'm sure inspired by someone from his youth. They probably had someone like that. Uh, but he just the way that snuffy. he would like. Yeah. And, um, the, the, 
the in armless Dave or some shit like that. I don't know. The only thing I could think of was that, uh, you know, maybe he was trying to use that as a device to add a little bit of danger. Cause at this point, um, you know, to, like what you said earlier, like New York looks very vibrant. It looks very safe. Kids are playing in the street, you know, jump rope, hopscotch, uh, you know, you just roam about by yourself down to the local bodega. There's never really any threat of danger. Uh, you don't really see yeah. any gangsters or, um, any crime, uh, other than what the kids are committing. Um, so yeah, which is maybe, all just very sort of like, you know, kids being darn kids kind of stuff. Right. Know, trash right. On yeah. Porch and very like Dennis, that. the menace, like, you know, sandlot kind of like vibe, Grand Theft right? Auto going on or anything. No. So maybe that was Spike Lee's, uh, you know, attempt at adding just a bit of like things, you know, there are things happening around, like in my youth that maybe, because again, this, this story was told from a child's perspective. So a child wouldn't necessarily always notice. Like when I was a kid, I was a free range kid um, in a smaller town, not New York, but still just the same. I was allowed to ride my bike and stay out after dark and all of those things. And there were probably a lot of, you know, moments that I was in danger that I didn't realize because of the ignorance of it all. You just kind of assume things are a certain way when you're a kid. So maybe your perspective changes that. So maybe that, you know, Spike Lee's character was kind of on the fringes of that. It was the only thing that him and his siblings could remember as like a, a telltale sign of danger. Will Robinson? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but there is a I'm super sure cool like shot that. of her, her having yes, a nightmare. That's actually what I was going to bring up. Got it. Yeah, go for it. No, no, no. Go. You got it. Well, you know, she's having an. If I'm not mistaken, she's having a nightmare about. Well, no, I think her- I think it's I think it's that she's supposed to be sick. I think she like comes down with a got fever it. because she's super okay. sweaty, and then Woody right. comes back and he's like toweling her off and stuff. And so I think, okay, yeah, I think she's like delirious from like a fever. Fever dream of sorts. Then. Exactly. Yeah. Um, basically of her confronting these two uh, stoop kids, Spike Lee and this other gentleman uh, that are huffing glue out of a paper bag and they give her some or force her to have some. Is that correct? And then she goes yeah. floating off into the sky. Uh, yeah. And that shot is sick, dude. That was Very such a cool, cool shot. We see. Well, obviously, she's on a crane that gets sort of lifted up to its highest point and then continues. Right. And we see the two of them fading into the background and she does a good job of acting appropriately. And yeah, and then, uh, you know, after that, dad kind of comes back and, you know, he tries to make nice, nice by making breakfast for everyone, even though he does so rather poorly. And that's when, you know, as you brought up before, the power gets turned off and it's around a candlelight dinner where the dad announces that he's going to do a performance. And we realized that he's a jazz musician. I wasn't 100 percent sure, you know, exactly what the genre was. But basically, he's at a time where, you know, R&B and and uh, rock and roll is coming about. And, you know, he's sort of the musician being left behind because he still plays piano jazz. And basically, he's like, hey, you know, he's talking to Carolyn, his wife, and mentions about how, you know, she he just needs her to support him. But in doing so, just very, you know, he he reinforces the fact that, like, he really doesn't, in my estimation, appreciate, you know, the degree to which she's holding this family together. You know, it kind of seems like he's just holding up down at the bottom of their apartment every day, you know, sitting there by himself, playing piano, trying to come up with these songs. And, like, she's the one who's, you know, managing these five kids and cooking every meal and, you know, working full time and this and that. And he, like, just stubbornly refuses to even like not not just get a normal nine to five, but even like play 
the popular music of the time, right? And right. and the interesting thing about this character is that like I think that Delroy Lindo brings a certain likability and charm that actually does not exist with this character on paper. Like he's really a very selfish individual, never willing to, like I said, you know, pick up a finger to help out Carolyn with the chores, disciplining the kids, you know, stubbornly refuses to, like I said, get a job or even play music. He doesn't want to. Everything has to be his way. And, you know, he still has the gall to even bring up like, oh, I never get time to myself. It's like, dude. Uh, so, you know, like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, you're literally talking to your wife after bouncing your fifth bad check of the month. Like, come so on, he, homie. I wanted to ask you about this, Jason. I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. I don't want to take too much time with it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we see Delroy. I think Delroy Lindo plays this role or this character very well to serve the script at hand. I think that the character arcs and then the kids being left with him at the end, uh, sympathizing with his plight a little bit, seeing him come and go out of uh, uh, the mother's life, uh, Alfred Woodard's life and, and this and that. We want to see him get back together. We're kind of rooting for this family. Um, okay, great. Uh, my question to you is, we see this character... Um, Woody, played by Delroy Lindo, the father figure, playing piano, talking about, you know, I need you to support me, you know, this and that. She's like, bitch, I am supporting you. Who do you think is supporting this whole family? (laughs) You're doing nothing but writing that shit. How, I mean, there are, we see him playing the piano at night and like, you know, putting notes down and stuff like that. By the end, he's got a performance of a few songs or whatever, a piano recital of sorts. I think that what's your opinion about the fact that there is an entire subplot about this character, like what he's doing during the day, you know, like he may not be, I think there's more going on behind the scenes than we're led to believe perhaps, or that we're shown because he doesn't have a job, right? And he's a full-time musician, but he's not playing music. He's very lightly writing his own music. So what is he well, doing? Don't forget that he owns day? the building. Okay. So what is so he like collecting super? rent? Yeah, he's a super, and that's what he's saying. And and because there's a whole scene with Isaiah Washington, the Vic character, okay, where after they lose the power and the his his date, if not his girlfriend at the time, Vic's Vic's yes. that is, she says she lives says, there. Yep, yeah, basically is like, look, we're not if you're if you can't even keep the lights on, like we're not gonna pay rent. And he's like, oh, well, you know, that's not how it works. And he's like, well, you know, that's how it's going to work moving forward, basically. Like, <laughs> right. we're going to get Watch the hell out of here if you can't work. keep the power on. So but then he, he does mean, have a little bit super, of though. that. Oh, no, he's no, it good. doesn't mean he's good at all. That's what I'm saying. This guy's like, he's a mess, dude. Like, he's bad at his job. He doesn't take responsibility. Right. Can't keep the lights on. Like, doesn't manage What do you think he's money. doing during the day? Is I think he he's just fucking he's around got a problem? with his music, you know? like Hanging I think out with Snuffy? I, I, I think it's very much a commentary on like, look, I mean, you know, there there's a lot of artists that have been this way, right? I mean, you know, whether you're a Dalton Trumbo, especially if you're like a writer or a musician, right? But for me, I'm very familiar with writers. So you have like the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who's the guy who famously wrote in the bathtub, right? And, you know, just like would literally be upstairs writing during the middle of his daughter's birthday party, right? Couldn't be bothered. Has a career. Uh Frank Herbert, who did the Dune series, famously basically locked himself away from his family in an office for five years doing nothing but research and then did the same for another five years while he wrote the six books. So I think it's that I think it's that 
you know, relentless, troubled artist in pursuit of their life's goal. But the thing about that guy is we only hear about that guy when he's successful, when he does become those people that we just mentioned. There are a ton of examples of that guy who don't make it, but they still obsessively pursue it to the same degree and ignore family and all of those other things, you know? So I think it's just, I think it's that type of character um, who until the end, when he's forced into the situation, you know, that's what it's going to take for him to change his ways. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll have to look look up more information, I guess, about Spike Lee's dad. But I feel like there's a whole subplot that we weren't shown that, you know, because he, he doesn't seem like, again, like a very successful musician or um, like he's putting in that much. We never see him locked away, you know. Uh, he's always kind of like doing it after the fact or um, he, he, like you said, he's not a very good super. So I don't know. I feel yeah. like there's some neglect going on. I feel like he's not very absolutely a little aloof. <laughs> fair, fair. So now from there, they do actually convince Troy to stay with her aunt. And so, you know, while they're going to do this performance, they're going to drop her off at the aunt's house, which is, you know, the exact antithesis of what they've got back home in Bedsty, right? It's, uh, you know, in the country, it's there's very prim and proper. There's a lot of pink in the house. And in addition to the aunt and uncle, there's a cousin, an adopted cousin who lives there as well. It's in Georgia, right? They go down to Georgia. Sure. Uh-huh. Which is where Spike Lee's originally born um, and went to college. Okay. So uh, he did his graduate studies at NYU, but he actually went to college in Georgia and, uh, and he was born in Georgia, uh, moved to New York at a young age. So I believe they take her down to his family down there because there's a there's a dialogue later in the film where it's like, how did you like the South? And she says they, you know, move slower down there. They talk. Oh, funny, yeah. And huh? she kind of like makes fun of the way they talk that. a little bit. Why did they do that? Because their power's out. That's their their yeah. shit's coming apart at the seams. Uh, they've obviously got some things to handle. And rather than dealing with them and paying the bills, they just peace out and take their one daughter on like a <laughs> summer trip or a vacation. Was that like pre-planned maybe? And they were just holding up to it because they don't drop any of the boys off there. It's not like that's what I thought was offload too. the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was like all sense. the kids, which would make sense. But to just go down with the one. And honestly, not only does it not make sense in and of itself, but that was kind of this was kind of also the one issue that I kind of took with in the film, just because, again, it felt very unnecessary. It felt unnecessary for the film and it felt unnecessary for the characters to do that as well within the context of the film. Dude, I mean, that's a a, a huge money suck. You got to, like, fill the tank several times, get hotels like I guess you can make it to Atlanta or, or North Georgia in a day's time, stay with your family and drive home, which just seems to be what they did. But when you don't even have power and you're lighting shit by candlelight and you got your tenants about ready to, you know, uh, move out and this and that and leave you destitute, um, maybe not the best time for a summer vacay. I don't know. Like, <laughs> seemed a little odd. Well, I, like, I think that's, again, just reinforcing, you know, how aloof the father is and in his own world. I guess. And, you know, like, he's yeah. not going to read the tea leaves he's just doing what he does and that's that mom duke seems like she was on board though she was like yeah let's go you know and uh, we were in that car on that road trip so fast that i was uh, you know never really given a chance to digest why or, or what the motivations were i was hoping that i missed something and you picked up on it but it sounds like it just wasn't there yeah correct now there are a couple things there uh that i did like the the first thing is i think that it has the film's biggest laugh which is the whole thing with the the reveal on the dog 
where her beloved dog goes missing. The aunt fucking, that is. I was on the floor the <laughs> Like that was some. I it was so unexpected because that's this the film thing. Doesn't yeah, have a lot like of big this laughs. isn't a broad comedy up to this no. point. Like we don't have like big Fairly Brothers laughs, and so like to just have this broadly comic thing where the dog, <laughs> this dead dog, comes flying out of a trundle bed. Set it hysterical. up. Tell the listeners. Yeah. yeah so basically, I mean, yeah. If you haven't seen the film, like the aunt's dog goes missing. She's like, oh, my beloved Fifi, where is it? Where is it? Blah blah blah. They can't find it anywhere. Later that night. Uh, they're going to go ahead and, you know, pull out the uh, the trundle bed from the old couch there for Troy, getting her set up. And as they, you know, take off the cushions and pull it out, out comes this flying mass of fur, lands on the floor, <laughs> completely motionless. Aunt starts screaming and we realize that it's the dead dog. Dude, no I think there's like a of how it got in there, but again, just very <laughs> unexpected and quite funny. I think there's like a Looney Tunes like spring effect, like sound effect when that was like tapoing and this thing was launching out over this woman's foot shoulder. Fucking hysterical. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am such an animal lover and I'm not like wishing on my dogs. But just in the way that it was You're presented. You're also a comedy so lover. And you understand absolutely. broad comedy. This was such a, <laughs> uh, a Looney Tunes moment for a Spike Lee film. It, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, you know, it's a it's a safe on the top of the guy's head, right? It's, the it's timing was and perfect. Exaggerated, Everything. But the physical comedy Everything. is right there. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing it did that I like, too, is um, just, you know, the way that it, uh, when Carolyn, the mom, sends Troy the earrings with the letter, and then it kind of yes. gives us like that narration and the way that she's narrating what's going on. And it's kind of, you know, the camera is showing different scenes and as Troy kind of like reads through it, it very much reminded me of what he would do later with the ending of 25th hour. Uh, okay. You know, very yeah. much using that same sort of device where I think it's the Brian Cox father character is talking and he's narrating what he should do. And we see everything and uh, nice poll. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of interesting to see those parallels I forgot there. about that. That's a good one. What did you... So let's talk about this because this is the... Before we leave Georgia and go back up and wrap this uh, conversation up a bit in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, one of the most... Um, uh, one of the biggest things we need to talk about here is the anamorphic squeeze and how he shot this whole scene. And I think you even pitched it to me when we talked about this before the show. Uh, that you had thought that this was a transfer problem or perhaps a, a, an error in how you I'm, viewed it? I'm shocked that I'm the moment you said it, I'm realizing that it wasn't a transfer. So that's legit in every single copy of the film? That was a creative decision that he shot this film with anamorphic lenses, which squeeze the image and allow you to get a super wide screen, screen sure. uh, uh, aspect ratio, a 2.39 to 1 aspect ratio, um, which is... Shorter and wider than, uh, you know, for people listening, than a 16 by 9, um, known as CinemaScope. But you have to de-squeeze it. So you squish it to get it onto the film frame. And then you and then you when you spread it out, now you've got, like, super black bars on the top and bottom. Because it's a big old Lawrence of Arabia-style widescreen image, right? Yeah. He didn't uh -huh. de-squeeze it. And he did that intentionally as a creative move to make wow. everything that happened in the South jarring and feel alien and foreign to our character, Troy, as she's seeing it. And I hate that so shoes. much, Ryan. I hate that so much. <laughs> Everyone did. So much so that apparently theater owners were having to put signs up um, saying, don't come at us and bitch and ask for your money back. This isn't a projector <laughs> problem. Like, this was a thing he did. Your beef Blame is him. not with me. It's with Spike 
Weekly kid. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. So I just I was curious uh, how wow, you felt about nuts, that. Wow, that's nuts, dude. Yeah, I was I was certain that was like uh, the streaming platform that I watched it on just like had a master transfer issue. No, that's no. Insane. He rolled some big huge dice and uh, yeah, came that's, up not good. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, dude. Yeah, there's just certain things where it's like, "Hey, I wonder how come no one's done this before?" and then you do it and it's like, "That's why no one's done that before." Yep. You tried it. But, yeah. And then once you've already got it in the can, you can't just de-squeeze it. And all of a sudden, like, because the other side of it is, and, and actually, now that I think about it, this may have been the way to go. Why not just de-squeeze it, throw your black bars up, and then it like, okay, now it looks different. Yeah. Super it separates widescreen. it. Gives yeah. it a different feel. It's not as confined as New York. Like, you've got a broader vision because it's open land and in Georgia. So, like, yeah, you could just the widescreen would make sense. Yeah. Like, that would have been a... If you get into post and you're like, actually, this looks like shit. De-squeeze it. Throw some black bars on that shit. Let's make it super widescreen. We'll just go the other way with it. Either way, I'm yeah. a winner. But uh, he did not do that. And so well, if you're and out you there just, and you're watching this movie, that's what was going on. And you just have to know as the director, as a filmmaker, whatever, that like people are not going to get that. Every What's going to happen is exactly what happened, which is everyone's going to think that the theater's projector is fucked up. Right. Or in my case, and, that the streaming platform is fucked up. And there's no internet in in, in 94, so yeah, it's not like exactly, you can Google right? it. And like, what was going, what was his intentions, blah, 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 like I did. <laughs> uh, you know, you're just stuck with it. And you're like, geez, that was weird, huh? Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Crazy. Now, the other thing that doesn't work about this film, I would say, is when they do come back, uh, the way they just sort of, you know, tell and don't show uh, the mother's illness, Right. And I don't know if that's just because maybe it hit a little bit too close to home for them and they weren't quite willing to go there. But I think that it was to the film's detriment to not give us a couple of those bedside scenes and give her. I mean, even to the point that, like, we don't even see her pass. Like, they go to visit her at a hospital. It's like, oh, mom's sick. And then, like, the next scene they're at home and dad's like, hey, so just so you guys know, mom has cancer. And then they like wake up the next day and it's like, oh, man, sucked that mom passed the other day. And it's like, we certainly raced through that. I feel like yeah. we could have given this 10 minutes. For how much time we spent in Georgia, they yada, yada, yada the fuck out of the mom's death. And the only, yeah. the only justification that I could come up with for that is, again, narratively, this is told through the point of view of the children. It was written as such and is presented as such. And maybe they felt that way. That one minute mom was there and one minute mom was gone. I was in Georgia and I, and nobody told me and I was young and, you know, as Troy's point of view or whatever. And when I came home, just like that, mom was gone. She told they told me she was sick. I went and saw her uh, and nothing. No, nobody made a deal of it. And so that was the only justification I could come up with it is just. Uh, from a point of view standpoint, maybe, but from a viewer's standpoint, from my standpoint on my couch watching this film, uh, yeah, I was like, whoa, that was very fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the film know. was I think, over. I mean, if that's the case, though, I feel like they could have done that better. Like, immediately yes. I'm thinking of the way that the Coen brothers handled it in No Country for Old Men. Because okay. that's very much just like, a, you know, like they're going to see it, and then the next thing, like, I think you just hear the wheels from Anton's character like speeding away and then we just see the dead body and it's like, oh, that just happened. OK, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, and, and I think that that's a very good example of doing that successfully. But the one thing that I will say is I do like the scene that they give Troy where she kind of has the 
realization, you know, she accepts her mom's death because, you know, she's just kind of going about her business as usual right after mom dies. Like maybe she's a little sad, but probably not as much as she she should be. And then we get that scene where she supposedly wakes up and hears her mom and dad arguing and runs down the stairs to find that, like, in fact, her mother isn't there and it's just her dad cleaning. I, I actually have a clip of that that I'd like to play for our listeners as well. Everybody was wondering when you was going to break. Even Clinton cried. Daddy, please don't make me move away. I know Aunt Maxine wants me to go and live with her. Nobody's going anywhere. Mommy was in a lot of pain, wasn't she? Yes, she was. It was good she died. So she wouldn't have to suffer. That's a nice way of putting it, baby. And so, Ryan, it's within this scene that, yeah, you know, we see her finally kind of accepting her mother's death. She's going to kind of step into a bit of, of a maternal role. Uh, you know, we see that in a later scene where she's, you know, tending to brushing the hair of her brothers. And but one thing we haven't really talked about is just the strength of the performances themselves across the board, uh, particularly from the main trio of Delroy Lindo and Alfrey Woodard and Zelda Harris, who are Troy and Woody and Carolyn. And yeah, all three of them super, super strong. Again, the fact that Delroy Lindo can bring a, a likability to a character that very much just could have and probably should have been like a deadbeat dad character, right? Um, like, you know, they could have totally painted him out to be one of those, you know, crackhead guys, you know, just in a, in a wife beater the whole time and, you know, not really actually working, blah, blah, blah. Like that would have fit in the context of this story, but you get Delroy Lindo, you know, handsome dude. And, you know, you know, he brings a, a different element to that father character. And again, I think it works for this film because again, I think that this is, Spike Lee's studio comedy, studio family comedy. And in that type of context, even the bad characters are never really bad. And if they are, they're so bad as to be like cartoons, right? Sort of like the next door neighbor character. So ready for this? I'm about to prove your point right out of the (laughs) fucking park. Uh, This was written as a series for Nickelodeon. No way. Originally. Dude, you know what? Dude, that's yes. so funny. I could totally see this being like a Malcolm in the Middle type of series that follows Troy. Wow. Correct. That's crazy. Or Everybody oh, yeah, Hates Chris yeah. uh, with Chris Rock, something like that. Yeah. So that's what this was designed as, um, kind of like a uh, 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 Brooklyn Afrocentric yeah. Wonder Years um, with, with uh, Fred Savage. So, um, yeah, they wrote this to represent... Because they felt like uh, television, like you said, everything you had named so far, I was kind of saving this, but everything you had named so far, uh, Roseanne, Wonder Year, you know, all Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, these are all very suburban, yeah, white, definitely. middle America representations. And they felt that their view hadn't been represented and they had a story to tell and their family was dynamic enough and this and that. And so... Uh, They wanted to tell that story and they approached Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon didn't want to do it. Um, And so they approached uh, uh, Spike and Spike was looking for a project to cleanse his palate from the heaviness of uh, the heavy load of Malcolm X, which was bananas. And uh, he said, 
yeah, let's fuck it. Let's do it. And it was a meager budget of 14 million. Like I said, um, they could bang it out, you know, in a very short period of time because I had very few locations. Um, but yeah, that was a deal with that. So you're absolutely right. More right than you thought. <laughs> awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, again, I thought Alfre- Alfrey Woodward was spectacular as the mom. I thought that, you know, she brings that weight. She's compassionate. You know, you sympathize with her every step of the way. You completely get that, you know, she's the one that's working super hard and doing all of the work. You know, you feel that sure. with her through her performance. Right. Um, and then, of course, uh, little Miss Zelda Harris, who was just adorable as Troy. Uh, you know, it's uh, too bad that and maybe you have some insight on this, but it's too bad. I don't really think we saw too much more of her, did we? Not much. Yeah. I don't know what happened to her. I didn't look it up. Uh, so I'm going to miss the mark on this one. But I I will. Add, I, I, I want to go down this road with you a little bit, though, because, um, you know, I noticed the same similar things that you're pointing out here. Uh, I'm going to retool it and rephrase it and put it back to you in a different way and ask your opinion on it, which is that um, not much really happens in this film, right? Like it's not, there's no big catalyst. We're just in these moments with a family. It's very simple. Um, And then I kind of unwound it and thought like, I think some of uh, like one of Spike Lee's greatest talents is giving us moments like, you know, it's not really like do the right thing. And um, he's almost like like a Quentin Tarantino. Like, you know, the, the, the things you remember about a Tarantino film aren't the big action sequences and the shoot 'em up moments. It's the dialogue. It's the the times with Travolta and, and Sam Jackson in the car talking about a quarter pounder with cheese in France and this and that, you know, um, I think that Spike Lee also excels at that. It's the dialogue. It's the small moments. It's, you know, and if you want to throw a big catalyst in the background, like summer of Sam, um, but then pull back and it's how you, how it affected those people and what they were doing in those moments on rooftops and around the city. Yeah. They were scared and this and that. Dude, I'll, I'll um, even, I'll, I'll pull out a comp that? for you. First of all, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think that he is, much more of like a slice of life filmmaker, if you will. Basically, you know, his films are character studies at the end of the day, and that's what it comes down to, you know? Right. And it's right. actually uh, it's actually pretty interesting to think about the fact that, like, yeah, when you talk about Do the Right Thing or you talk about Crooklyn, there is no uh, plot. There's like there's like There's not like a character in pursuit of something. Like, he's just sort of putting these characters out there. He's giving us a minute. One thing I was going to say is that I actually think that a pretty good comp for him is your boy Dickie Links. I think Richard Linklater very much sure. sort of does that, you know, and it's just about right. hanging out with these people and getting to know them as people and the way that they think about life and process these situations more than it's about, you know, the progression of the plot through the first, second and third act and the rising obstacles and blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's I think that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, this same story told through a different lens, uh, and this is something else that occurred to me as I was watching Crooklyn, because to your point, very lighthearted, very colorful, very vibrant. Um, Around the same era is Dead Presidents. Did you ever see Dead Presidents? I did not, no. You know what? I'll be completely honest. A lot of my... 
Yeah, a lot of the, you know, when sort of like African-American cinema and, um, you know, John Singleton and Hughes Brothers and all these guys started coming out right in those 90s. Like that was that's where, you know, the three to four years between us, like make a big difference. Right. OK, that's fair. Because um, I was just a hair, you know, maybe 11, 12 ish, like right before I started getting into my teen years to where you'd get into that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I, think, I mean, yeah, because I think I got this like when Crooklyn comes out, I'm 10. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, uh, in all fairness, this was the first time I had seen this film. So uh, when Crooklyn came out for me, I was uh, as old as I am today. I was today years old when I saw Crooklyn. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but yes, you're right. Uh, Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood was very, very impactful on me. Um, you know, knowing that that was going on not fair, far away from where I lived. This wasn't a faraway tale. This wasn't, you know, another country somewhere or anything. This was... Down the way. This was around the corner. Like, you could... I've been there, you know? Like, we drive through there yeah. on the way to the airport when we're flying to Grandma's house, you know? Like, fucking South Central's yeah. right there. So, uh, yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I hit this off at the top of the show, which is a lot of these culture-changing things were brought to my doorstep at a time when I was in my very formative years and at a time when I was in my video cassette watching years. You know, the yeah. five movies for five days for five bucks. This was all... Shortly after this. So if I didn't see it, you know, um, when it first came out, I saw, you know, a lot of these movies shortly thereafter. And and uh, my love for hip hop and rap music and all of those things, um, you know, growing up in a small suburban white town, mostly white town, Caucasian town, uh, you know, it, all of a sudden, you know, my eyes were open that there was this whole big diverse ethnic ethnically diverse world out there with all these challenges that I had no idea about. And I just drank it all in. So, uh, this was a part of that, but yeah, dead presidents though was, uh, you know, crime filled caper, uh, you know, post Vietnam, uh, guys come back and, and it was told through the lens of the Hughes brothers. And it was a completely different Bronx, Brooklyn, New York, Manhattan that we were dealing with. At this same era, you know, and then go back to all the um, uh, black exploitation films that we were talking about during our sweetbacks discussion and Shaft and all of that. So, uh, yeah, it's just interesting that uh, that Spike was able to, you know, as much as you said earlier, that Spike is a very uh, tells very dark tales. And this one wasn't, um, you know, I would also argue that uh, he's got a more vivid and hope filled view of New York City than some uh, have given us. So I thought that was interesting. Sure, I would agree with that. I think that's very fair. So, yeah. And then, you know, pretty much the film wraps up with, like I said, you know, that moment of sort of Troy accepting that her mom's dead and she's going to kind of step into this maternal role. And she's, you know, brushing out the hair of her brother before he like runs out and plays with the kids, like run along your little scamp type moment. And uh, yeah. And, you know, the neighborhood's just kind of back to business as usual with the kids back to playing their games. And, you know, unfortunately, mom's passed, but uh, that's just kind of life, you know, and everyone's kind of get back to their thing. We see dad sort of inhabiting his role as, you know, an actual father figure because we actually see him cleaning, which, you know, he, we, we can't imagine he's ever done before. And uh, yeah, so that's Crooklyn. Really strong movie. Yeah, Ryan, I liked it. As always. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up with our three adjectives. Go ahead. Tell us what you got. Uh, I got vibrant. Um, these are pretty much, we nailed all these on the head. Um, uh, vibrant um, because of everything we said uh, earlier with the bright colors and all of that. I thought that uh, that was from the, from the titles all the way to the uh, final shot. I thought that uh, it was very, 
early 90s too because early 90s you're talking like i mean i'm thinking like midnight marauders from tribe called quest or uh uh you know anything like i'm thinking like dashikis like you know everything was like bright purples bright yellows and afrocentric culture and this kind of harnessed a lot of that nostalgic um because of all of the soul music all i wanted to do was go listen to uh delphonics or or uh you know all these old soul records even well, arthur you know, conley Isaac Hayes, you know, although even, you know, Maggot Brain by Parliament, funk, soul, R&B, all about it. Staple singers and uh, uh, character driven uh, hyphenated one because of everything we said already. You know, this was pretty much that's why I kind of I skipped ahead when I asked you that, because there wasn't really any. It was almost like we talked about I forget what film we were talking about recently where we talked about it being genreless. Was it Cash? But this so, kind yeah. of felt genreless to yeah. me. It wasn't really funny enough to be a comedy. It wasn't dark enough to be a drama. I guess it was kind of a drama. Um, but yeah, this was just a character study. You know, it was character driven, uh, like you had said. Uh, how about you, Jason? What do you got? My three. I've got Honest, just because, as I mentioned, it gives a genuine look at a lot of these different characters and their situation and the dynamics at play, even though they're not always flattering. We've got optimistic because it does have a positive worldview. You know, at the end of the day, their love for each other is going to conquer all. You know, deaths aren't going to necessarily destroy the family or hold anyone back. You know, it keeps a certain cheery disposition throughout the entirety of the film. And also family oriented. That's my hyphenated one uh, for obvious reasons. So honest, optimistic, family oriented. Great. All right, so, Ryan, we got to go ahead and formalize this. What do you have for your grade rating? Giving this one a B. Nice. I think this one uh, is just right down the middle good. Yes. It's a good film. <laughs> I would recommend this to anybody. I think that it's safe to recommend to anybody. There's nothing about this that I think, you know, would be more enjoyable to one person than the other. I think it's just a feel-good film. Start to finish. Tells a nice, warm story. Um, you know. It's like a Rob Reiner in, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn, New York in the early 70s kind of film. Uh, how about you? Absolutely. Yeah, pretty much the same. I got a solid four out of five stars and is for all the reasons cool. that you uh, mentioned. And it's very accessible. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about like, you know, we're famous for saying like, this is not a movie I would recommend to my mother. Right. On this show. All <laughs> <Right. laughs> like yep. weird A24 shit. But like, this is totally a film I'd recommend to my mom or anyone's mom, you know, like ages eight to 80 sure. fun for the whole family. Right. Uh, this is yeah. It's a box of Legos. <laughs> right. So uh, the, the last thing I did want to add, though, um, before we sign off and, and pick our next week's film, uh, this was uh, something I, I didn't really see where to fit this in. Uh, to our conversation, but I do want I do think it's important to talk about. This was the parting of ways for whatever reason um, between Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson, who's his cinematographer. Mm. Uh, this was the last film they worked on together. Ernest Dickerson uh, worked with him on their very first music video for White Lines by Millie Mel all the way through Do the Right Thing, School Days, Malcolm X and all those iconic Spike Lee, you know, dolly low angle shots pulling the main character, whether it be Spike Lee or or Denzel as Malcolm X, you know, pulling him down the sidewalk. Um, you know, there's these uh, pretty iconic Spike Lee oriented shots. He invented all that shit uh, along with Spike. They were homies. And then Ernest Dickerson goes on to be a director and uh, he decides. And that's why they parted ways. Um, and he goes on to direct Juice, 
um, with, I believe, Tupac, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of your favorite films, Demon Knight, directed by the great Ernest Dickerson hey. uh, from Tales from the Crypt. So, Such a good uh, one. We've got that one on the list, off, too. So. Yes. It's just weird. I had no idea there was a demon knight to uh, do the right thing connection. <laughs> that is crazy, dude. Honestly, I I I just now learned that he directed that. I've probably even seen his name on the back of the DVD that. case like a dozen, <laughs> two dozen times. I just not ever thought twice about it. Like, yeah, because who the fuck yeah, is this? Exactly. Like, you thought he was just a one-off dude, maybe a TV guy that got pulled up in the ranks or something. No, I mean, no, I, I knew Eric was Dickerson, Spike Lee cinematographer, <laughs> and that's the thing is, I knew him as Spike Lee cinematographer. So I don't think there was any part. Oh, of, I did not. Yeah, no. So I don't think there was any part of me that thought he would, for a second, be the guy that made Demon Knight. <laughs> yeah, or if it was, yeah. it was, you know, like just some, you know, middle-aged white dude that happened to be named Ernest Dickerson as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty generic name, but, uh, right. <laughs> that's crazy though. So Jason, what do we got? Let's do the thing. I need to know. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to do that movie. Well, okay. But first we just got to remind you guys that we are available on the socials and the internet. First thing I always forget to do this. Do please like and subscribe and give the ratings. We we never never hawk this stuff, but yeah, if you're listening to us right now and you haven't, please give us ratings. I feel like we've been out way too long to have like six ratings like we have because we know we got the listeners. Uh, but yeah, help us out there. Uh, oh, and if you haven't heard, uh, just a little bit ago, Spotify introduced a rating system. So you can now leave us an actual ratings on Spotify in addition to just iTunes, even though I know from our numbers we don't have a ton of Spotify listeners. On the socials, Jason Aberrant for me, the Ryan Siebold or Ryan underscore Siebold for the other guy that you're listening to on this show. And then, of course, Esoterica Cinema at gmail.com as well as on Twitter and Instagram and EsotericaCinema.com, where you can get the master film list that we pull from every week, including right now. So, Ryan, we have got just two episodes left after this. Isn't that fucking nuts, man? Kind of sad, but only so we could regroup and uh, subject ourselves and all you listeners to season three coming down the pipe. (laughs) Yep. And we do have a lot more uh, short form content that we're going to be releasing along with the longer form episodes. So we are really looking forward to a lot of the stuff that we have in season three. If you did listen to the bonus episodes this season, thank you very much. Uh, That's going to basically, we really like the content, but it's probably a little bit bloated of an episode. So we're going to take a lot of the same content and just stretch it out for you and release it in little bite-sized chunk as featurettes. We'll have some five to seven minute movie reviews for you as well. In addition to our long form reviews, as we always have. So once again, two more episodes to round out season two, then we'll go on a bit of a hiatus, introduce some of those smaller features before we come back swinging full steam ahead with season three. So we're going to come here to our master list and also to our random.org true random number generator that we're so fond of. And we are going to select a number one through 200. And Ryan, I'm really shocked. Like even through seasons one and two, we've never pulled the same number twice. I, you'd think just the rules of randomness. Yeah, I might get it. But I mean, here we you, are. Have, I'll take it one step further. You, you'd have thought we would have had a game plan for if we did and we don't. So <laughs> <laughs> Like, you think we would have removed these films from the list, adjusted the numbers, whatever? No. <laughs> Way too much work. Fuck all that. If we get the same movie, we'll just edit it out and pick a different number. <laughs> That's the game plan. 
Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's do it. Let's do the thing here. Coming over. Blah, I'm ready. Blah, blah, blah. One through 200. Generate. Pull in a number. We've got 76. I have no idea what it is. It'd be great if actually 76 was something we've already watched, so it could prove this wrong. Oh, wow. <laughs> it is not. But hey, do you like art films? We have got the quintessential art film for you here. Ryan, I actually think this is going to make for a very interesting conversation. Oh, this boy. is something that both of us learned about in film school. Okay. Now, Ryan, if I told you that we were going to be watching an entirely silent documentary that we learned about in film school. What oh, is this Cassavetes? No, it's not. No. But the phonetically, you're close. Okay. It's number 76. We're looking at Koyana Scotsy. Oh, cool. Now, I have actually never seen this film. This is considered a landmark of documentary cinema uh, paired I with art. Apparently, again, it is. Yeah, I, I was I was going to say, I thought you watched it back then and like I didn't. I've um, seen this a couple times, been... actually. Oh, have you? In, in Yeah. Uh, I mean, in in various. Like v- clips and snippets like I haven't just sat down and watched this fucker start to finish. But, uh, you know, because you could take this or leave it. This is something you could put on in the background. Uh, it's a trippy ass movie. I really like it. This is uh, directed by Godfrey Reggio, a collection of expertly photographed phenomena with no conventional plot. So there's that. Uh, the footage focuses yep. on nature, humanity and the relationship between them. This is something I think everybody should see just once. Um, it's also uh, got Ron Fricky involved in it, who went on to do Baraka and, um, you know, a couple other uh, films like this as well. Um, and I think you got uh, Philip Glass doing the score for this as well. So oh, there's, yeah. There's a yeah. lot to like about this film. I hope you did. It's it. going to be an interesting episode, right? Because I don't know if we're going to be able to just go through it start to finish if there isn't really a narrative. Right. Um, so this will yeah. be, uh, be kind of an interesting not only film to watch, uh, but also an interesting experience in terms of how that episode comes out. Maybe a super short one, guys. Or, on the contrary, maybe we end up just breaking down all of this symbolism to such a deep degree that it's like a super long one, or maybe somewhere in between. We have no idea. An experimental film deserves an experimental podcast episode. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Uh, Also part of the trilogy. Uh, There were three films like this and Baraka wasn't much different either by Fricky. So uh, yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So definitely looking forward to getting into Koyana Skatsi. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's spelled K-O-Y-A-A-N-I-S-Q-A-T-S-I. Doesn't sound like that should make a word, but it does. Koyana Skatsi. Make sure to check it out, and we will see you next week on Esoterica Cinema. Waking up with the sun, wipe the sleep out my eyes. Just another lovely day living in the bedside. Hit the bodega for food, get my chores all done. Then grab a bag and some paint, it's time to have me some fun. Put some paint in a bag, a deep breath to the dome. Like the guy in Mad Max, I'm feeling shiny and chrome. Like marijuana to Snoop, or Gwyneth Paltrow to Goop. You could always find me huffing paint on a stoop. 
this chemical concoction's got me feeling so heavenly. I'm high up in the sky like Richard Fryer in the 70s. Here come the unicorns and a leprechaun, dude. Man, that show in Williams puts me in the best mood. Sidewalk is my bed, the staircase is my couch. My paint comes in a can like fucking Oscar the Grouch. Like Spike Lee with the Knicks or Julie Andrews sings. Huffing paint on a stoop is my favorite thing. Sometimes it gets a little dark or a tooth falls out. Don't panic. No time to scream and shout. Just take off all your clothes and run as fast as you can. Scream, you'll never catch me like you're the gingerbread man. In ten minutes, you'll be back on the ground with your paint in your bag to turn the frown upside down. Take another deep breath as the world goes faint. If God didn't like it, he wouldn't have made paint. Like Martha Stewart to food or salt and pepper to shoot. The best thing in life is huffing paint on a stoop.